Hello and welcome to Sensei Podcast. This is Manos Brilakis discussing with leaders in the field of CTO and Complex PCI. Sensei means teacher or master in Japanese. The goal of the Sensei Podcast is to help you learn and improve in CTO and Complex PCI so that you can become the best that you can be and offer your patients the best possible results. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sensei Podcast. It is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Ethan Korgold from uh, the Providence and Vincent Hospital in Portland, Oregon. He's the, uh, doing structural, coronary, and peripheral. He's one of the few people who can actually master several different fields of interventional <laughs> cardiologists. And we're very, very excited to have you today, uh, Ethan. Thanks again for joining us. Of course, it's uh, so fun to be here. Thanks. So, Ethan, you have a, a unique pathway because, again, there are very few people. I, don't, I think you're the first one in this podcast that has such a wide area of expertise doing at a very high level different procedures. So how, how do you do it and how did you learn to do all of this? Yeah, so I will say in fairness, I don't do coronary CTOs. I will do complex coronary cases, but I uh, mostly do structural, peripheral and, uh, and coronary interventions. Um, I think to me, I think it's really exciting to be able to take lessons from one discipline and to apply them to another discipline. Um, so we all know uh, that for coronary CTO, a lot of the innovations were out of the peripheral space and there's been just incredible um, uh, back and forth of techniques and innovation and, uh, and devices that have gone from the peripheral space to the coronary space. And I think the same is true for uh, structural and peripheral as well, especially with initial generation of TAVR devices, there is so much uh, emphasis on large bore access and management of large bore complications, which really comes out of the uh, peripheral experience. So um, for me, what really excites me is the interfaces between the three different disciplines and being able to practice um, three uh, is something that is, it is relatively unique in this environment and something I feel really fortunate to be able to do. And how did you learn? So d different specialties, there's some similarities, but also some differences. So how did you learn? And was it sequential? Did you train in all of them? How did that happen? Yeah, so I finished my training in 2009. So uh, at that time, it was a one-year coronary intervention with some, uh, with some uh, structural blended in, and then a one-year additional uh, peripheral uh, interventional training. Uh, I did all my training at Mass General Hospital in Boston. Um, and so we were exposed to a wide variety of stuff. And then I think it's just really important that, uh, you know, even after you finish fellowship to continue to be engaged and be active conferences, um, courses, and really uh, learn the state of the art. And then how did you learn the advances in um, the, uh, the structure? You know, all these things happen, a lot of things happen after 2009. Was it on the job training? I know you are a big fan, I will go over this on the social media and Twitter, but how, how was the best uh, way that you, how did you learn to do these procedures? I think it's really, um, you know, when these devices sort of initially came out, they were in research. We have a very active uh, research program at our institution. Um, so training, being part of those uh, research activities, uh, you know, with the investigator meetings and the sort of early uh, uh, sort of models and stuff like that, that was really the, um, the sort of foothold to learn about uh, structural and, uh, and we were all learning at that point. Uh, and then sort of building from there, using that as a building block, uh, conferences, uh, courses, uh, interacting with other physicians uh, has really been the way that I, I keep current. And then 
how do you prepare for those cases? Do you find the preparations the same for any kind of case or there are specific things you do longer or different or more intense for some kind of cases versus others? I think it's really different for every case. I mean, one of the um, you know unique things about interventional cardiology is we're always jumping into something with uh, sometimes incomplete information. So you know, sometimes if you're doing a STEMI in the middle of the night, you have really very little preparation. You know, whatever you can glean from the chart in the few minutes before the patient goes on the table. Um, but when it comes to things like uh, structural, uh, we, we do have some more time to plan things out. Our coronary, complex coronary interventions, we do have some more planning. And I think um, just sort of knowing what your options are, knowing what your plan uh, is going into the procedure, and then knowing what the sort of various off-ramps are in case things go wrong. Um, you know, where can you stop? What can you do? What sort of intermediate steps would be safe? Um, I think that's all important to sort of plan out and think about before any procedure. And then what do you find the most difficult, difficult thing to learn? What are the things, in any of the things that you do, what was the most difficult thing to learn and to teach to other people as well? Um, as far as difficult things to learn, I think um, anytime there's a new device, I think the only real test of it is to use it in a case. Um, there are all sorts of sort of simulators and models uh, and, and such that are available these days, but nothing compares to how it actually works in a, in a case. So I think that at the end of the day, that step is something that, um, that is really uh, hard to replicate. So I think knowing your equipment is really important and knowing how it behaves, but, uh, but nothing uh, actually uh, will test it out like using it in a real case. And Ethan, since there are patients actually at the other end, the safety is a paramount, especially new devices. So is proctoring that yeah. one that helps to handle through this learning stage? I think proctoring can be very helpful. And I think also relying on a network of people whom you trust and who practice similar to you uh, to, to know their experiences. Um, I'm fortunate to practice in just this uh, incredibly collaborative group uh, with really very bright, uh, excellent interventionalists. Um, and just sort of hearing from other people what new equipment is out, what new wires are out, what is recommended is, uh, is something that's really useful. Um, if we're ever stuck in a case or having trouble, we'll always ask each other for opinions and, uh, and that uh, is really helpful to get out of a jam. And then when you have to do a complex case, do you get stressed out? Do you have your adrenaline rushing? Are you past that stage <laughs> now? How, how do you feel before some of the very complex cases I've seen that you do? Um, I think that uh, planning is really important uh, if you can for the big complex cases, if you're not just sort of jumping into it. Um, with that information. But I think as long as you can plan for it, planning is really important. And then I think just sort of being calm and thinking about all of your options is really critical. Um, uh, one of uh, my attendings when I was in training was uh, Chip Gold at Mass General Hospital. And he was he had a lot of just very sort of uh, quotable quotes. But one of them was he would always tell us that we were the captain of a ship in stormy weather. And just sort of maintaining that calm in the middle of chaos is I think really important and, and actually really sort of um, helps me through a lot of challenging cases. And how do you keep focused during a complex case like this? Do you feel yourself drifting to other things or are you able to be laser focused on what you're doing? I can be pretty focused. I mean, I think, frankly, that is really one of the pleasures we have as interventional cardiologists is that you can be completely focused on the task at hand uh, and just be completely absorbed in the flow of the procedure. And that is something that's, uh, that, that I, I can focus on uh, very easily. 
And then when it comes to teaching, I know you've taught many people in many courses and uh, what do you think works the, the best? What are the things that work the best for people to learn? Um, I think when it comes sort of procedurally, I think the best way is to just do it yourself and to be hands-on. Um, so when I'm uh, sort of proctoring or teaching or uh, when we have uh, structural fellows, um, I think it's really important to let that person be hands-on and engage. And your role is to sort of coach and point out uh, things that they're doing right and things that they're doing wrong. Um, it's not a personal attack to say, I don't like what you did or there's a better way of doing that. It's just, uh, it's just how we learn. Um, and so I tend to give very sort of quick feedback, um, you know, some positive, some negative, um, and try to make it as unfreighted as possible, uh, just so that people can get better with how they do it. And sometimes you don't choose who you train, but sometimes you have some saying. Um, <laughs> if someone really wants to train with you, what should he or she do to impress you and tell them, okay, I'm going to train you to do complex procedures? I think um, working hard and um, uh, sort of following up, uh, sort of preparing as much as you can before the case, and then following up with the patient after the case, taking a patient through uh, sometimes a complex hospital course, I think that is really uh, critically important. Then do you believe in talent? If you see the, is the good hands that make the great operator, or you think it's the training and the practice? Um, I think it's a combination of both. I think there's sort of a wide corridor where people can perform well. And I've been surprised, frankly, by some people who I didn't think would do well and who um, really put in a lot of effort and then end up performing at a, at a very high level. Um, so, uh, so I think people are trainable. I think there's a few people at sort of either end of the spectrum um, who just won't be able to do things well. And I think there are some people who are just exceptional. Um, I also think, um, you know, I've encountered people in my career who have decided that uh, intervention is not for them and have dropped out of intervention. And I think that's um, an incredibly courageous thing to do. Um, I think if uh, if what you're doing, uh, you know, there are sort of issues. That, you know, if you're if you know that you're not performing to the level that you want to, and you decide that maybe you're best suited to doing something else, I think that's a, a fantastic life decision. So, um, so I'm fully supportive of that, and I think we need to be supportive of our colleagues that decide to pursue other paths. And how do you train your hands and your fingers? Since the most things we do is hand-eye coordination. Do you do any specific tricks? Do you practice something specific? Do some <laughs> exercises? How, how do you do it? I don't do anything in particular. <laughs> I, um, no, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I don't uh, play video games. I think I would be sort of unemployed uh, if, if, I, <laughs> if I got down that rabbit hole. Um, I don't do any like sewing or knitting or anything like that. I just, um, no. Do, do you do anything like that, Manos? I'm just curious. Do you do any sort of dexterity training or anything like that? You know, I don't specifically know. I, I, use, I play the accordion, so I, I made many years I was practicing okay. when I was young. So, you know, I don't know. You know, other people say it's I'm playing the piano or playing the guitar. It can give you some more coordination with the eyes. And I must say, it, it does help to some extent. I can say my right huh. hand who does more is a little faster. But, I mean, I know most people don't, so I, who knows? <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. 
And then um, when it comes to the learning process, I think one of the things that you've pioneered literally and uh, you've taught many people, it's through the courses, but even many more so through the social media and specifically Twitter. So how did this start for you and how did the journey start and how are you on it right now? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we, uh, I think social media has played a really important role in being able to share new techniques. I mean, uh, interventional cardiology is all about sort of tips and tricks and little things that you do in the cath lab that solve little problems. And sometimes these don't uh, rise to the level of, you know, publishing a paper out of it or writing a book about it. Um, but uh, these are things that are really helpful. Um, you know, I can think of things like uh, using the back end of a wire to straighten out uh, an EBU catheter to help it engage the coronary. Um, I mean, that's an incredible trick that I use every day and I learned from uh, a friend uh, uh, at a course. Um, so things like that, things at a small level are really well suited to sharing on social media. And um, I, so that's, that's, I think, a way that interventional cardiologists can sort of uh, share tips and tricks. And that's how I learn a lot of cool stuff. And I've seen you done a lot of work on many areas. I mean, the distal radial is the one that I love to see mm -hmm. how your early days and doing all your cases, distal radial. Um, and of course, you and uh, um, you know, Jason uh, Walmuth with uh, single access techniques. So, I mean, many, many really, as you say, day-to-day -day things we use, we've learned through the things that you've posted uh, online. How much time does it take and how feasible is it? How do you blend it to your busy practice? Um, I just think things, uh, you know, I think it's really important if you're doing a new procedure or doing something cool, just, you know, save it on fluoro, take pictures of it uh, and be able to share it. Um, you know, there is a real... Um, you know, interventionalists love to tinker. And so if you come up with something cool, please share it with the world. Uh, put it out there on Twitter. Um, you know, do it uh, obviously in a responsible way. Uh, but we all want to learn sort of tips and tricks. Uh, and, and there's there's so much uh, more that we could be doing better. So so teach us. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, you know, many people have benefited from this. Some others are a little more skeptical in terms of the time required and also the peer review part. Like, how do you know whether this actually is? I mean, the common criticism, I think Ajay Kirtanek was saying that, that, you know, everyone posts their best case, right? And then maybe right. the biased, a biased uh, perspective of what's going on. So how do you fight from that lens? Yeah, so I don't, you know, I, I think it definitely has limitations. I mean, people... Uh, generally show sort of feats of strength uh, uh, where uh, the result looks very good. But it's hard to to generalize that that is the ideal uh, course of treatment for every patient in that scenario. Uh, this is not sort of randomized clinical trial data that we're, that we're showing out there. So I think that um, it really sort of falls into the category of tips and tricks, I think is the sort of best thing for us to be sharing with each other. Um, I think, uh, you know, there have been some interesting explorations of um, what would you do in this case? What should I do with this patient? And I think that's good at, at uh, generating discussion and at sort of pointing people towards different things in the literature. Um, but I think uh, that, that the best use for interventionalists is really on procedural tips. Are there, you know, one or two cases that have really changed the way you practice, that really changed, that taught you a lot, the good or bad ones for that matter? Um, yeah, I can think of, uh, of a few that have had a, a real sort of uh, impact on me over the years. Um, it, one of uh, the cases I did was um, 
it was a uh, it was a carotid stent I did sort of early in my career, and uh, the patient uh, everything sort of went seemingly well with the procedure, uh, but very shortly after the patient had a thrombosis with the carotid stent. Uh, and required sort of repeated interventions. And uh, this is one of those cases that really taught me a lot. Um, you know, I, I became incredibly close with the patient and the patient's family, and this was, you know, this dreaded sort of feared complication of the procedure. Um, but I, uh, I, I, uh, I, as I said, I became very close and he did okay through his recovery. And, um, uh, you know, this thing that I was uh, very worried about and, um, and very uh, concerned about uh, my patient and his outcome, uh, it turned out to be a real sort of growing experience. And uh, it wound up that a lot of the patient's family members switched their cardiology care to, uh, to me uh, just because of how, um, uh, because of sticking with the patient. And, and I think that really sort of taught me that um, complications will happen. You know, anytime uh, you're doing uh, procedures and procedures with volume, you'll have complications. And what really matters more is how you handle the, the complications and the consequence of those complications going forward. And speaking of complications, um, how do you handle them now? Do you get depressed? Do you talk about them? H how do you handle the complications that can happen to some of these complex procedures? Yeah, I mean, I think sort of being honest with yourself about what could have been done differently is really important. I think it's important to share it with colleagues um, in uh, in sort of uh, a constructive way so that you can learn uh, how to do things better. I think that's really important. And and again, I think what's absolutely critically important is to um, is to uh, really attach yourself to the patient and the patient's family, and uh, so that you can all go through this together. Um, uh, I, I think that that is really the, the best way to handle it, to learn from it, to develop uh, as a proceduralist and as a doctor. So Ethan, what excites you the most right now from everything you are doing? Um, I think what's, uh, I think in the structural field, I think uh, watching transcatheter mitral valve replacement evolve has been really incredibly exciting. Um, this is something that's been on the verge for I don't know, the past eight to 10 years, uh, and it's just not quite there yet. We're in uh, two research trials for devices. Uh, it's And just watching those devices iterate and get better and treat patients is really exciting. And it's uh, amazing to think of where that technology will be in, uh, in 10 years or so. Uh, TAVR has been great watching that go from a sort of niche research uh, procedure that we would do one a day and now we do sort of five a day and it's one of the quickest and safest and smoothest procedures that I do. Um, watching that evolution over the course of my career has been incredibly exciting. And, uh, and watching sort of capabilities in the coronary and peripheral space just continue to refine and get better. It's been, uh, it's been amazing. I feel like uh, uh, it, it's been a great sort of last 12 years in interventional cardiology. I'm just so happy to be a part of it. And what are you most proud of from the many things that you have done so far, both personally um, and professionally? I think, um, I, you know, as we sort of talked about earlier, I am very proud of the fact that I'm able to do uh, peripheral and structural and coronary at a high level. Um, I don't know a lot of people that can do that. And, um, and I, uh, I really enjoy all of it. And there's nothing I would want to give up. And I feel like I learn and get better by doing all of those different kinds of things. So that, that's something that I feel um, really happy about, uh, that I'm able to, to still integrate this in, at this point in my career. 
do you have a favorite book or a favorite movie? Um, I would say favorite movie is, uh, I think it has to be uh, 2001. Um, I just love the aesthetic of it. Um, it's inspirational. It's sort of creepy. Um, it's just, uh, that's one that I just keep coming back to. Um, and I would say favorite book, um, I would have to say Cryptonomicon by uh, Neil Stevenson, which is just this um, incredibly idea-dense tome of a book that sort of weaves stories of uh, World War II code breakers and the sort of modern internet. Um, it's just a great read. It's a, it's a commitment, but it is a great read. Wonderful. And then what is the next for you? What is the next step for you? in the next 10, 15 years. Obviously, you're too young to think about retirement. But, uh... <laughs> I think um, uh, you know, we, we just hired another structural interventionist in our group and uh, watching her sort of develop, I think, will be uh, uh, just a fantastic thing. Watching our group sort of grow and develop and acquire new skills is something that's great. Um, but I think that um, sort of, uh, I think, from a professional level, I think that transcatheter mitrals is going to be the next big breakthrough. I think uh, tricuspids is something that's sort of on the verge. And I think um, sort of refining uh, peripheral and coronary technique over the next uh, 10 years will be really important. Um, I'm really excited about what's going on with mechanical circulatory support. Those devices seem to get better and better. And I, I wonder about sort of newer, better, less invasive strategies uh, to come out in the future. So I, I think the, there's a lot of cool and exciting technology coming out. Perfect. So if someone came to you and asked you how to become expert like yourself, especially <laughs> in the multiple disciplines that you do, what were the key pieces of advice that you would uh, give them? I think um, maintaining sort of curiosity about new technologies is really important. I think that um, what we do uh, relies so much on devices that are out there. And so I think it's really critically important to know all of the devices in your cath lab, um, have, know what's essential, know what you have strong preferences for, what you have weak preferences for, and just be able to sort of, uh, just sort of think about what, uh, what devices you have and how they fit and what roles they play. When new stuff comes in, it's really important to engage with it, to learn it. Um, and, uh, and I think that holds for what comes into the cath lab and what comes into other labs as well. Um, I love it when a new sort of, there was a new sort of neuro, uh, neuro device that came in for uh, thrombectomy and, um, you know, Jason Wilmoth and I looked at it and we looked at each other and we thought, I, I can't wait until <laughs> one of us puts this in the coronary. Um, so uh, I think sort of uh, knowing what's going on in other disciplines is really important because that, that pushes our field ahead too. And then in terms of parallel versus sequential, so my sense is your, your course was more sequential because the fields evolved as you were going into them. But today, you know, every field is very mature, right? Structural is very mature, mm -hmm. even though mm -hmm. mitral is evolving very rapidly. Coronary is mature. Peripheral is also mature to a large extent. So how would you advise people who want to do this combined effort, how would you advise them to go? I think, <clears throat> I think realistically, I think you can pick two. I don't think you can do coronary CTO and peripheral and structural all at a high level. Um, for me, the two are peripheral and structural. I think you can combine the two, but it takes a lot of sort of deliberate effort. 
Um, I think uh, I, I think it's important to uh, I think at this point you know two years of interventional training is essential, and I think uh, how uh, you sort of spend those two years it really depends a lot on the program, um, but just uh, be open and, and get experience and, and do what you can. And then, are there any people that you would uh, um, call your mentors, or you would recommend the people to find? What do you think is the role of a teacher and a mentor? Obviously, much general, you got you know, top-notch teachers, but people who have less opportunities, less access, how would you advise them to go for finding someone to teach them how to do this? I think, yeah, I mean, my, I, I, I absolutely love my training at Mass General. Uh, Kenny Rosenfield, uh, who was the, um, uh, who uh, was our sort of mentor during the peripheral year, uh, was really uh, critical and instrumental and really sort of, um, he's just an incredible operator and, and has this approach where he will, uh, he's very sort of curious and engaging and will, uh, is very creative in his approach to, uh, to, uh, uh, to devices and to treatments. And that, that's something that I really, uh, try to aspire to, uh, Igor Palacios in the structural realm is, um, was also, uh, incredibly, um, uh, inspirational for coronaries and, 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 uh, structural intervention. Um, I think for people that are looking to learn and to train, I think um, you know finding the best training program you can, where you have a high volume and uh, good thoughtful operators, is critical. And if you're uh, if you don't have that experience, or if you want training sort of later, um, I think uh, pairing up with someone in the community, maybe at an academic center, maybe at a high volume center, that you can bring complex cases to, that you can work with, that you can learn with, that you can bounce stuff off. That's also uh, a pairing that works very well. Um, and we've had a lot of people come through our lab and learn that way. And I think that that uh, is very useful. And those those relationships are important and. Uh, and it's a it's a it's good for patients and it's good for us to sort of learn and grow professionally. Wonderful. Well, again, Ethan, really appreciate uh, your insights today. Lots of opportunities for people <laughs> to learn from everything. And again, super excited to be in courses with you and learn from you and with you. So thanks again so much, and uh, we'll see you at the course shortly. My pleasure. Fun talking with you. Take care, Manos. Thank you for listening to the Sensei Podcast.